All right, we are winding down in our series on faith based on Hebrews 11. We've been camped on chapter, or on verse 32 for quite a while. And I would like you to turn there today as we read a portion of Hebrews 11. So we go right to Hebrews 11 today, and uh, we'll take a look at beginning at verse 32 where we've been uh, there for a number of weeks. We've been ex- expanding, excuse me, on the life stories of the six men listed here. And we spent all this time, all this time, all these weeks looking at the lives of these men because we want to try to understand what would be going through the minds of the original readers of the letter to Hebrews when they read these names. We know that first century Hebrews, Jewish people, would be far more familiar with the Old Testament than we tend to be, and we want to do our best to understand the passage as they would have understood it as much as we are able. I've also been hammering away at our definition of faith for weeks upon weeks upon weeks upon weeks. I'm sure you're probably getting it kind of memorized by now. I certainly hope so. And so I just want to remind you with a short review. I keep shortening my review a little bit each week here lately. But remember Hebrews 11.6 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And we're using three words to help us understand that verse, that definition. Confidence, conviction, and confirmation. That faith is confidence in God, accepting what God says even when we can't understand it all. Biblical faith is always rooted in the character and in the promises of God. Faith is conviction to do what God says to do. We believe what God says is true, so we are committed to obey it. Our conviction directs our behavior. As I've said to you for many weeks, we do what we do because of what we believe. Whatever we believe, that is what is going to drive our choices. That's what's going to drive our behavior. And so when we believe what God says, then we have the conviction to obey what God says. And then faith brings confirmation, that God God gives us the assurance, He confirms to us, gives us the assurance that we're on the right track, first through the Scriptures, and eventually through our circumstances. Because biblical faith is not abstract, it is not mystical, it is concrete, solid assurance, because its foundation is the Word of God. You know, in our lives, sometimes we do not know which way to go. Life has a way of throwing a curveball at us now and then. Sometimes we face circumstances that are so confusing that we don't know what to do. Or we don't know what we need to do. We don't know what would be, what would be best. We can't figure out what we want. And that's when we can be thankful that the Holy Spirit directed the Apostle Paul to write that wonderful verse in Romans 8.26. that says, we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. And the Holy Spirit of God helps us. He intercedes for us when we don't know how to pray. You can read that verse sometimes, Romans 8.26, wonderful verse. There are moments in our lives when the pressure is so great. We are so tired and worn out and life has become so confusing that we don't know what to say to the Lord. We don't know how to pray. 
trials and hardship and suffering and trauma, they all lead to fatigue. And that wears us down eventually. And so when we cry out to the Lord for help and grace, then our great God who knows all things can kind of fill in the details through the direction of the Holy Spirit that the Lord certainly does not need more information from us, thankfully, because we often don't know what to ask for. And when we're confused, we know we can be assured that Jesus Christ is not confused. We may be puzzled, we may be perplexed by our circumstances, we may be bewildered and unsure about what to do, but we should never be driven to despair because life does not depend on our knowledge of the big picture. When we are at our wit's end, God is still in control. He is totally in control. And He often does His best work in us and through us when we are quite confused because that's when we lay it all out before the Lord and trust Him more fully. As one of my missionary friends from Africa has said on numerous occasions, when we have GPS, credit cards, and cell phones, what do we need God for? And what he meant was we have all sorts of means to try to fix everything ourselves. But when we come to the end of ourselves, then we are more inclined to pour out our hearts before the Lord. And I am more and more convinced that that the best witness to the watching world is not some argument to prove a theological point, although it's very important to know what you believe and why you believe it and to be able to verbalize that, but, but our best witness to a watching world is not, is not our best argument, but, but it is how we respond to life when we take a good whack on the chin. What do we do when trouble comes? How do we face suffering? How do we handle loss? An author once said, we need a sound theology of suffering if we're going to reach this generation. And I think he's right, because we are the light of the world, Jesus says. And when does the light appear to be the brightest? Is it the brightest in the noonday sun, or is it the brightest in the middle of the night? Well, the answer is obvious. We are the light of the world 24 hours a day, but our testimony, when it's lived out during hardship and sorrow and loss and suffering, is going to resonate more loudly to the unbelieving world because it comes in dark times. Anybody can sing when the sun is shining. But if we, like Paul and Silas, beaten and thrown in jail in Acts 16, if we can still sing at midnight, then the world hears us differently. There are a number of you who are old enough to remember the old weekend TV show came on every Saturday. It was called ABC's Wide World of Sports. The opening of the show, while they were playing all sorts of clips of sporting events, they always described sporting competition as the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And every time I say those words, I can still see in my mind that guy coming down that ski slope sailing up in the air and landing on the snow and wiping out. Every week when they said the agony of defeat, they played that clip. I don't know who that guy was, but I thought, man, would he want his his wreck showed every Saturday again and again and again and again and again. They don't say who he was, fortunately. But the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, of course, it's just a sporting event. But, but, But in real life, God's people experience Thrills and agony. We experience victory, 
and we experience what seems like defeat, although we know that God always wins in the end, and what looks like defeat is only temporary, but it can still be quite troublesome, as we will read in our text. We're going to pick it up here in Hebrews 11, back here again. We're going to pick it up in verse 32, where we've been camped on these guys for all of these weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. We're going to read to the end of the chapter about 12 verses. And one, one primary principle I want to give you today, and then we we'll want to develop it several different ways. Hebrews 11.32 What more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, probably a reference to Daniel, quenched the violence of fire, probably a reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. And if you're a Bible highlighter, you mark that one little phrase, out of weakness were made strong, because I mean, that is... That is my prayer for me every single week. Out of weakness were made strong. Became valiant in battle. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Again, not the modern view of that word, but, but, but foreigners, people from other countries. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Both Elijah and Elisha raised from the dead. Some children and gave them back to their mothers. Women receiving their dead, raised to life again. Others, and this is the negative part, were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. Micaiah, the wonderful prophet of God, who stood against wicked King Ahab, was thrown in prison. I remember as Ahab ordered him thrown in prison, after Micaiah had said, you're going to die in battle today, Ahab. Ahab says, throw him in prison and feed him on bread and water until I come in peace. He never came in peace. I often wonder what they did with Micaiah after Ahab was dead. But, but as after, my, after Ahab said that, Micaiah looked at him and said, King Ahab, if you ever come in peace, I am not a prophet of the Lord. That's the end of his story. You'd have no idea what happened to him. But chains and imprisonment, you know, Jeremiah thrown in an empty well, half, half full of mud, left there for days and days on end. Mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment, they were stoned. There's a prophet named Zechariah, not the Old Testament author Zechariah, but another prophet who's recorded in, in 2 Chronicles 24 who was stoned to death for his preaching. They were sawn in two, undoubtedly a reference to Isaiah. We don't have the recording of it in the scripture, but in Jewish tradition, the wicked king Manasseh took the wonderful prophet Isaiah. He was an old man by this time in his 70s or 80s. They stuffed him into a hollow log and sawed the log in half with him in it. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us." We are going to spend a little bit more time looking at verse 39 and 40 next week, Lord willing. 
But I just want you to think about these people here. Many of the Lord's people, they were poor, they were persecuted, they were disowned. When he talks about wandering around in sheepskins and goatskins, animal skin clothing was considered to be rough clothing. There was no availability of linen or wool fabric which required a loom to, to produce. And so you made clothing from tanned animal hide. It was just a sign of a rougher nomadic lifestyle. Then he talks about living in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All of these people were dedicated followers of the true and living God. And the writer of Hebrews says that the world did not deserve them. Many prophets and priests and women and men of God who stood for righteousness and truth, they were treated horribly by those to whom they were ministering. And the scripture says the world was not worthy of them. The world did not deserve them. But they received a good testimony through faith. Remember our definition of faith, our word confirmation? They received a good testimony through faith, but they never lived to see God's promises fulfilled. Specifically, it says, they did not receive, verse 39, the promise. That is, the coming of the Messiah. And we'll talk about that, that promise in, uh, Lord willing, next week. But what is, what is the message of these verses that I want to give to you today? One phrase that, that I hope we can burn into our memories, and that's this. True faith is not affected by our circumstances. True faith is not affected by our circumstances. You could be experiencing the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. Your life experiences could look like verses 33 to 35, or it might look like verses 35 to 38. You might have either experience, or through the course of your life, maybe both of them. And yet it says all of these, verse 39, all of these obtained a good testimony from, from, through faith, even though they did not see the promise fulfilled. You see, that, that is the attitude of true faith in God. Confidence in God is not affected by our circumstances. The commitment to obey God is not affected by our circumstances. We stand for the truth of Scripture. We stand for the cause of Christ regardless of the circumstances. That's the attitude of the Apostle Paul expressed in Philippians 4. In fact, in fact look back there for just a moment to the book of Philippians in chapter 4. Let me just read you three verses from Philippians 4. The Apostle Paul had received a gift from the church at Philippi for his personal and ministry needs. And this is how he responds. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's Paul saying? He said, it doesn't really matter what my circumstances are. I am content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. I know how to be full. I know how to be hungry. I know how to have a lot. I know how to have nothing. And regardless of what my circumstance is, he says, I am content. I am trusting God. I am believing God. I am obeying God. I am serving God. 
And the Apostle Paul and our heroes of the faith here in Hebrews 11 not only had true faith rooted in the character of God, they also had the right theology regarding suffering and adversity. Because true faith is not affected by our circumstances. We want to spend our remaining time today thinking about this theology of suffering and adversity and because, because it illustrates exactly where these people are that we just read about this morning. These teachings are all over the Word of God. There's been thick books written on the topic. We're just going to look at a few passages of Scripture today. But I want to, I want to tell you this. Suffering is a tool that God uses both to get our attention and to accomplish His purposes in our lives. Suffering focuses us or forces us to turn away from trusting in our own resources to live by faith in God's resources. Look at a very interesting verse with me back in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes in chapter 7. It's right after Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Solomon, of course, wrote Ecclesiastes as well, and so he makes a fascinating statement here. Ecclesiastes 7.14, he says, In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Say, what's he talking about? He says, in the sovereignty and in the providence of God, He has ordained all the good events as well as all of the difficult circumstances of life. And nobody knows the future. We have no idea and no idea what the next day will bring. So He says, enjoy the blessing of God if that comes to you. If, if God makes your day prosperous, be joyful. Thank the Lord for it and be glad. And He said, in a day of adversity, He said, Peter, think about it or consider what is God doing through me? What is He trying to show me or wanting me to learn from my time of trouble? Because He said, nobody knows the future. It might be prosperity, it might be adversity. We, we, we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. And in, in the design of God, adversity is something that God uses to make us think. It, it's a tool that God uses to get our attention and to accomplish His purposes in our lives in a way that would never occur without the trial. There are lots of reasons why we suffer. Let me just give you four reasons why, potential reasons why we suffer. One is sin. We suffer because we live in a fallen world where sin reigns in the hearts of people. Our sin affects other people and their sin affects us. None of us live in an isolated little bubble. All of our choices are all interconnected. We often suffer because of our own foolishness. We reap what we sow, as Galatians 6 tells us. So sin is one reason why we suffer, but sin's not the only reason why we suffer. A second reason would be human error, just simple human error. Some of you probably sat, seen or heard there was a big vehicle pileup yesterday on I-90 in Billings. Uh, on the on the bridge over the Yellowstone River, thirty cars over thirty cars. Was somebody sinning? Was the pileup caused by someone's moral failure? Probably not. They just made a mistake, slid on the ice, overcorrected, hit the brake too hard, something. No, no failed morality involved. Just just human error. It happens all the time. It affects all of us. 
We slip on the ice. We hit our hand with a tool. We cut our finger with a knife. Our foot slips and we fall off a ladder. Nobody sinned, but in the weakness of our humanity, our eyesight isn't perfect, our balance isn't perfect, our coordination isn't perfect, our response time isn't, isn't as good, and it gets worse as we age. Believe me. I can't tell you how many of my wife's dishes I've broken in the last several years. Not sin, just human error. We're, it's, it's all over the place. Sin's one reason, human error another reason. A third, a third reason, God's discipline. In Hebrews chapter 12, the next verse after where we're looking, it says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, or meaning disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Hebrews 12, 6. The writer of Hebrews tells us that if God never chastens us, then we'd better check our salvation because God disciplines all of His children. He uses adversity to get our attention. He uses adversity to teach us. There's a fascinating series of verses I want to look at just very briefly. We won't spend a lot of time on them. But in Psalm 119, I came across these verses oh, 40 years ago. Right after Nathan was born. So I was thinking about some things and preparing some different thoughts from the Scripture. The Lord led me to these and I have kept them in mind all these years. Psalm 119, three short verses. We're going to look at the first one in verse 67. Just thinking of the discipline of God. God's discipline of His children. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now... I keep your word. Interesting thoughts. Verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. You see, God disciplines us for our good and His glory. And the psalmist writes, I was wandering away and I, and I, and I went astray and I, and I didn't stay right where I should be before I was afflicted. But then God sent trouble. Wham! Now, Lord, I keep Your Word. He said, it, it, It's good for me, Lord, that I've been afflicted so that I can learn Your statutes. And I know, Lord, that You brought all, the, all these things to me because of Your faithfulness to me. Great thoughts as we think about trouble. Trouble does not mean God's mad at you. Most of the time, trouble means God loves you. He's trying to bring you back in line. He's trying to give you some uh, the, the right focus. So suffering comes because of sin, human error, God's discipline. And then we may be seeing this more in years to come, persecution. We may suffer persecution because of our faith, especially when we take a stand on biblical issues. Suffering for righteousness' sake, as the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, all, he said, who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Of course, all of these reasons don't apply to us at the same time. Adversity is not all of these things that are at the same time always. However, troubles and trials always reveal areas of need, areas of weakness, wrong attitudes that need to be adjusted. That's the process of sanctification. As we grow in Christ, God brings troubles and trials and difficulties to us 
in order to keep us in line, in order to, to, to glorify His name for our eternal good. Because God isn't just interested in good for us in this life, He's interested in eternal good for us. And I want to wind up our thoughts, and that's kind of a dangerous Apostle Paul thing, you know, how he says, and finally, brethren, it writes two more chapters. Okay, I want to wind up our thoughts, but don't, it's going to be more than three minutes, believe me. I want to look at two more verses, two passages of Scripture, and I want to give you five more truths about trials. Uh, the first one's in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We often quote verse 1, but I want to read the, other, the rest of those verses to you. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful, beautiful verse. Then he says, Through whom, meaning Christ, also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. And we say, wait a minute, Paul, wait, what are you talking about? Glory in tribulations? That sounds like I should be happy about it. That's exactly what he says. We also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance or endurance. Some of their older translations translate it patience, the ability to keep plodding along, the ability to keep enduring without caving in. Tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And again, not our modern use of the word hope. The word means confident expectation. Anytime you see the word hope in our English Bibles in the New Testament, it means confident expectation. Not I sure hope it turns out this way, but confident expectation. Tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces a confident expectation in God. Now hope does not disappoint. It's not failed hope. It's going to come out the way we know God wants it to because we know it's never disappointing to us because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Interesting thoughts there. We won't belabor the point there until we read again in James chapter 1. Our other verse, and then I'll give you five truths about trials. James chapter 1, just three verses, verse 2, 3, and 4. James 1, 2, 3, and 4. James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. You say, oh, there's that guy again. Paul says, glory in tribulations. And now James says, be happy when you fall into various kinds of trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And that's the very same word translated perseverance in Romans 5. Ellipsis. Patience, endurance, perseverance. The testing of your faith produces patience or perseverance. But let patience or perseverance or endurance, let it have its perfect work. That you may be perfect or perfected, mature and complete, lacking nothing. You see what all these various trials do? They make us grow in Christ. Let me give you these five, these five thoughts based on these two passages of Scripture. Number one, suffering's painful. When Paul said glory and tribulations, he did not say that it would not hurt. 
The very word tribulation means distress. Stress, hard. Suffering's painful. It's never easy. Regardless of what we know about the Scripture and how hard we apply its, its principles, it's still a trying time. That's why we call them trials and tribulations. No one denies the pain in trials. Suffering's painful. Secondly, suffering is perplexing. It's often mysterious. We may know the scriptural reasons for suffering from scripture, but when it hits me, there's always a certain mystery, like, like why now? Why did this have to happen now, Lord? Why did this happen to have, have to happen to me right now? Well, what is God doing? That was Job's experience. He couldn't figure out why these horrifying, heartbreaking trials were happening to him. Throughout all the mystery, we learn, as Job did, to trust the sovereignty and the providence of God. Number three, suffering has a purpose. Suffering is not without meaning, even though we might not understand it. In spite of its, of, of its mystery, there is meaning to it. We just read verses that tells us God uses these things uh, to strengthen us and to grow our, our character. As James said, let suffering or let endurance have its perfecting work. Let it do what God wants it to do so that we can be mature. Number four, suffering is a process. We can easily see the step-by-step process in our passages. Paul talks about tribulation leads to perseverance, which leads to character, which leads to hope. See, it's, it, it's a process. It takes time. The, the result that God wants to accomplish, Christ-likeness, with all the trials of life, it requires time. That's why, that's why we learn endurance. We, we can just keep plodding. We don't give up. Our faith doesn't fail. We develop convictions. We learn the priority of faithfulness. And, and that is a process. And then number five, suffering is a purifier. Suffering is a purifier. James said, let that... Patience have its perfect work, so you will be perfect, meaning mature and complete, lacking nothing. It's a purifier. Warren Wearsby, the wonderful Bible teacher and author, now with the Lord, I believe he died in May of, of, of 2019, he, he used to write, A Christian who has not been tested is a Christian who cannot be trusted. You say, why is that? Because trials and adversity develop our character. They make us trustworthy. If we can remain faithful to God in trying circumstances, then we can be trusted when it's smooth sailing. Tribulation produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces confident expectation. You know, Proverbs 24.10 says, If you faint, if you give up in the day of adversity, then your strength is small. And as a, it's often been said, the test of your character is what it takes to make you quit. When trials have had their perfecting work, as James says, then you are mature and complete. Suffering has had its purifying effect. An old saying from back in the days of sailing ships, they used to say, smooth seas do not make skillful sailors. Certainly true. And back to Warren Wiersbe, he wrote a book a number of years ago on trials and adversity. And in his unique style, he had a wonderful way of expressing things. He titled his books, the bumps are what you climb on. Interesting thought. But you see, suffering itself is not the thing that produces the faith or the maturity. 
It is our response to tribulation that produces godly character. As James says, let tribulation have its perfecting work. Let it do what God intends for it to do. Learn to trust God. Learn to rely on God. Uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding, Proverbs 3, 5 tells us. Trials are only a tool that God uses to grow us. They force us uh, to turn from trust in our own resources to living by faith in God's resources. We can discern what's really important. We can discern what's eternal. We adjust our priorities to bring them in line with God's priorities. It causes us to put first things first, which brings us all the way back around full circle to our heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 and our principle for living. True faith is not affected by our circumstances. You could be experiencing the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. Your life experiences could coincide with Hebrews 11, 33 and 34, or it might look like verses 36 and 38. And yet all of these obtained a good testimony through faith, even though they never saw the promise of God fulfilled. And that is the attitude of true faith in God. Confidence in God should not be affected by our circumstances. Our commitment to obey God should not be affected by our circumstances. We stand for the truth of the Scripture. We stand for the cause of Christ regardless of the circumstances. And those folks in Hebrews 11, they lived that way because they not only had true faith rooted in the character of God, but they also had the right theology regarding suffering and adversity. The wonderful old-time Puritan writer Thomas Watson wrote a couple of great quotes. He said, A sick bed often teaches more than a sermon. And he said another, in another of his writings, God's chastening rod is a pencil to draw Christ's image more distinctly upon us. Does your theology of suffering bring you to a crisis of faith? Or does it deepen you and strengthen you in the things of God? Because true biblical faith is not affected by our circumstances. We just keep moving on regardless of what's going on around us. Let's pray. Lord, we know there is so much teaching out there around us that... If you're living right and if you're doing what God wants you to do, it's all going to be uh, just just wonderful and you'll always have money and you'll feel good and nothing bad will ever happen to your family. We know, Lord, that's so totally unscriptural. Absolutely wrong. It is not what you told us. You've told us all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Even Solomon, 3,000 years ago, said you made both the days of prosperity and the days of adversity. You've ordained them all. We know, Lord, we need to have the right theology of suffering so we can really understand how you want us to respond. So we can, as the Apostle Paul said, glory in tribulation because we know you're making us into more Christ-like people. We can take joy in various trials, as James writes. And those trials and tribulations will have a perfecting work on us. 
And Lord, we can live like those folks in Hebrews 11, regardless of whether they were winning victories and receiving people back from resurrections, becoming strong out of their weaknesses, subduing kingdoms, stopping the mouths of lions, quenching the violence of fire, or we might be enduring chains and imprisonment and suffering and mocking and scourging and poverty and rejection. Regardless, Lord, of the circumstances, we can still walk with you. We can still trust you. We can still wait on the fulfillment of your promises. We can do what's right in the eyes of God, regardless of our circumstances, if we have real faith. So, Lord, help us, we pray. May we be what you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.